faithless culture? How is it that we are supposed to live in a faithless culture? Daniel chapter 7 will be the focus of our study this morning. Daniel chapter 7. How can we possibly reform every single person with whom we have contact? How can we reform our culture? And the answer is that we can't reform every single person. And God never intended us to do so. There will be many who defy Him. There will be there are many who defy Him today. They walk around blindly and defiantly and they hate God. They, they hate the very Creator who made them. And there are whole nations that rise up without a thought of honoring the true and living God. And so what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live in a culture that is godless? The message of Daniel is this. Because God's kingdom cannot fall, we must be faithful to God even in the midst of a faithless culture. Think about Daniel and his three friends coming far away from Jerusalem to a place that is opposed to God. How could they live in that kind of a culture? And the answer is they needed to keep their eyes fixed on God whose kingdom will not fall. They needed to see the bigger picture that God was in control and that they needed to be faithful to God even in the midst of a faithless culture. And that point that God's kingdom will not fall becomes even clearer this morning when we look at this chapter together. Because in Daniel 7, we get a glimpse into the window of God's power. In Psalm 2, the psalm begins with a question. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people, why are they devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And they say this, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So we have people all throughout society's history since the fall of man that have risen up against the great God and His anointed one. And they rage against Him. And they try to overpower Him. They try to conquer His people. And yet, here's the next verse in Psalm 2. It reads like this. He who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord scoffed at them. You see, God is not concerned about these nations who tried to oppose Him. God is not concerned that that He will be overcome. This power, these powers of this world that are usurping, trying to usurp the authority of God, that are opposing Him, they are not new. All the governments since the time of Genesis chapter 6 have been doing that in some measure. That the nations have been raging against God. And that rage will come to a culmination in the end times under the leadership of the Antichrist as we're going to see today. But their rage against God, all of these human governments, all these people who devise wicked schemes and try to overpower Him, they do it in vain. God sits in the heavens and He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. Their rage against Him is like the little yipping dogs 
nipping at the leg of a dinosaur. They are no match for the true and living God. God's throne will not be overrun. God's kingdom will not be destroyed. And that will be one of the crescendos that we see here in Daniel 7. Oh, it may appear, friends, that God is losing now. It may appear that that Satan is winning. But our God is in the heavens. And He allows them to boast of their alleged sovereignty and their alleged uh, rule for now and for a time. But that boasting, in terms of the bigger picture, will be short-lived. Well, let me read this chapter for us. Follow along with me, beginning in chapter 7 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and he had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominions was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, 
and the visions in my mind kept alarming me, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, in which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its association. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Lots of symbolism here in this passage, but if you can see the meaning of these symbols based on what Daniel tells us they mean, then I think it will encourage you this morning that Christ is going to bring justice to the earth. Yes, we do live in a faithless culture. And yes, society has lived in that kind of culture all the way back to Genesis 6 at the first institution of human government. And society will be faithless all the way in general, in general terms, they will be faithless all the way until the time when our Lord comes. But He will come and He will bring justice on the earth. Daniel had been taken into captivity by Babylon as a teenager and yet God caused him to serve in the highest of courts under all of these kings, really. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was second in command. Then King Belteshazzar, he was third in command. King Darius, third in command. Fifty years now have passed since he's been taken into captivity. The year is 553 B.C. Babylon is still at this time a world empire. Now, remember, in chapters 1 through 6, we had somewhat of a chronology that was going on, and we've already moved past this time period. Daniel's going back to it now because in chapter 6, we were learning about Darius, which is, he was the king of the 
one of the kings of the Medes and the Persians. So that's the second empire. We had the Babylonian and then the Medes and the Persians. And then they'll be followed by the, the, the Greek empire. But for now, Daniel's going back. So these events that you're reading about here in Daniel 7 are not chronologically after Daniel 6. So don't think of this whole book as a chronology. Now he's going back to talk about what happened actually before chapter 5. Because King Belshazzar was uh, the king at the time. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 7. He was in the first year of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar, remember, would reign for six more years before you had the writing on the wall. And then, do you remember how long after he, he lived and reigned? Yeah, just that night, right? He was killed that very night. That's when Cyrus came in with his armies and overran the Babylonians and the kingdom of Babylon fell uh, very quickly. So, 50 years have passed. This is during the time of the Babylonian Empire when he receives this vision. Daniel is in his mid to late 60s and he's laying on his bed. In order for us to understand this vision, we need to understand the characters in the vision. Then we need to understand the plot of the vision. And then we need to understand its application. So those are our three main pegs that we're going to think through that we're going to hang everything on today. All right. First peg, we need to understand the characters of the vision. The characters. And there are three categories in this first under this first peg. All right. The characters of the vision. The first category is the four beasts. Verses 2 through 8, the four beasts. Notice the source of these four beasts. In verses 2 and 3, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So these four beasts, okay, first think about the symbolism, then we'll talk about what the symbolism means. The, the four beasts are arising from the great sea which could be referring to the Mediterranean Sea, but more likely it's referring to... It's it's symbolic of something else. Look at verse 17. I'll show you why I say that. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from... Then notice it doesn't say the sea or the great sea. It says from the earth. And so here he's actually telling us what the beasts are going to be or what they are and what the sea is. He's saying the sea is actually the earth. So the sea is probably symbolic for humanity or maybe it's even God's angels who carry out God's purposes. That They are the ones who cause these things to happen according to God's plan. Uh, but but the, the sea is not really at the center of what we need to know. So let's think about the beasts themselves, the four beasts. Verse 3 tells us that each of them is different from the other that these four winds stir up the sea. This tumultuous sea produces four beasts and you see these four ugly creatures coming out and each one more terrifying than the one before. So what are these four beasts? Look at verse 16 because it tells us... uh, Actually, verse 17, we just read it. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings. Okay, So that's what you need to be thinking about. That while there's a picture of beasts, what Daniel's actually seeing, uh, it, he is seeing those pictures, but what, what God is actually telling him is that these are going to be four kings or four kingdoms. And we've already been introduced to four major world empires in chapter 2. You remember the statue that was in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the head of what? Gold and the chest and arms of silver and the legs and belly of bronze and then the feet or the legs of iron and the feet 
uh, were part of that as well, and that was made of iron and clay. So those are the four main kingdoms. And those four kingdoms correspond to these four beasts. In chapter 2, we saw the kingdoms from, from our perspective, from a human perspective. That is, we pictured it as this monstrous statue that could not be destroyed. The only thing that could destroy it was something that was derived from God. It was a stone that was uncreated and it comes and it's hit at the feet of this statue and it crushes the whole statue. And then remember what happens to the stone? It grows up and becomes what? A mountain that fills up the whole earth. And it's, it's referring to God's, or, yeah, God's kingdom that's coming through Christ. And so we saw it kind of from our perspective that it's, it's huge and, and high and lifted up. There's no way we could destroy the statue. It's something that God has to do. Well, here in chapter 7, we have another vision, more symbolism. But now instead of from our perspective, it's more from God's perspective. You know how God sees these four kingdoms? As four ravenous animals that will ultimately be destroyed. Four ravenous animals that are evil. The first one is found in verse 4, beast number 1. He is like a lion with wings of an eagle. Now, this word like is going to be used seven times in this chapter because uh, anytime you have symbolic pictures, uh, it's often difficult to explain. Just read through the book of Revelation you see the word like all over the place and it's not because it's written by teenagers. Uh, okay, it, It's got the word like because these guys, John and here Daniel, they don't know how to describe it. It's like nothing they've ever seen before. We don't see animals. We don't see lions with four wings on them. And so he says, as best as I can tell, this is how I can describe it to you so that you can understand it. And John does the same thing in the book of Revelation. This first beast is some kind of a lion combined with an eagle, which combines both strength and speed. Think of the ferocity of a lion, but then one that's much faster than a lion. And these two animals, if you were to turn to Jeremiah 49, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write these down, Jeremiah 49, 19-22, these two animals are the same two animals that are used to describe King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon which is why I say it corresponds to those four parts of the statue in Daniel 2. Remember the head of gold we said was King Nebuchadnezzar. And then he would be replaced by the chest and arms of silver, which was the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greeks and then the Romans. And so I think these four beasts correspond to them as well. This one, the, the lion with the wings, is most likely referring to Babylon. But as fast as this lion takes over, it is humiliated just as fast. Look at verse 4. The middle of the verse says, I kept looking until its wings were plucked. So part of what made it so ferocious was its wings, and yet its wings are taken from it, and then it's left lifted from the ground and made to stand up on two feet like a man. It's, it's humiliated. It's not doing what it, it had been intended, had intended to do most likely referring to the wings being taken away, most likely referring to Babylon's, or I should say Nebuchadnezzar's, seven-year period of insanity that he's brought back down to reality. Listen, you're not the king of the universe. You may be the king of Babylon, but you're not the king of the universe, and here's how you're going to see it. You're going to be humiliated here. So the first beast is a lion with the wings of an eagle. The second beast resembles 
Okay, this, we could use the word like here as well, is like a bear in verse 5. And verse 5 tells us that this bear is enormous and one side stands taller than the other. Okay, so I'm not sure exactly what Daniel is seeing here. It could be that this bear is much like a hunchback of some kind. I'm not sure. But one side is taller than the other. And the other thing that really stuck out to him is that there were three ribs in its teeth showing how much of a vicious appetite it has. And many scholars believe that these three ribs represent three conquered kingdoms of uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so this one equates with the second part of the statue, the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire led by King Cyrus and King Darius. The third beast is found in verse 6. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And then notice, the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Leopards are known for their quick attacks, and the fact that this one has four heads heightens its savagery, right? This beast, representing the third major world empire that God had prophesied in Daniel, the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and then the kingdom of Greece, which would not happen till after Daniel's time. It would happen. Uh, it would be led by Alexander the Great, who just as a young man took only ten years and conquered nearly every nation from North Africa to Pakistan, and was undefeated in battle. This guy was amazing, and so much like this leopard, he he rises to the occasion is quick to attack, takes over these countries, and now has this great dominion uh, responsibility. That's the third beast. The fourth beast is the great and terrible beast with ten horns. And this is really throughout the passage. And this is the focus of Daniel's attention because Daniel sees this and is, I think, in some ways fearful of this fourth beast. Because we're going to see that this fourth beast actually takes over all the others. He destroys all the others. And he's much more fearsome, uh, uh, fearful than, than the others. His description is found in verses 7 and 8. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the others. And it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, so an eleventh horn, a little horn, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, I haven't seen an artist's rendition of this beast, but it would be quite a sight, quite an eyeful, I think, because it was this beast that is great and terrifying, and it has ten horns on it, and then an eleventh horn comes up and uproots three of his horns. And this eleventh horn has eyes. And so this would be quite a sight to see. Uh, look at verse 24. Okay, remember this beast is a kingdom. And we know that because of verse 16. Uh, verse 17 we know that. But verse 24 tells us what these ten horns are referring to. Okay, remember Daniel says, I want to know especially about this fourth beast. And so this heavenly being tells him, and he says, verse 27, um, 
I'm sorry, verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, that's the fourth beast, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue, notice, instead of uprooting three horns, three kings. Okay, so very simply, the horns are referring to kings. Apparently, this fourth kingdom will be led by a confederacy of ten kings, which will eventually be ruled by this one other king, this eleventh king. This eleventh king is called a little one, a little horn, and he comes up and he, in order to show his great power, uproots three of these kings who were part of that confederacy. And so while he starts out small, he rises to power in a hurry. And we find out how vicious and how evil this man is in verse 11. Okay, First, in verses 9 and 10, we have this picture of the Ancient of Days, the one who has the power over all. We're going to find out who that is shortly. But notice what happens in verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. You have this picture in verse 10 of these thousands upon thousands standing before the throne or bowing before the throne and myriads of myriads before the Ancient of Days. And then you have something that's out of place. You might hear sounds of worship from all of them, but from this little horn, what do you hear? Verse 11, boastful words. Like, why are they praising you? What's so special about you? Have you seen what I have done? Look also at verse 25. Speaking of the little horn, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. We have this great picture of the Ancient of Days on his throne. And yet this little horn is boastful and wants to, instead of praise this Ancient of Days, he takes pride in himself. Well, we find out his identity in verses uh, uh, Daniel wants to know the identity in verses 19 to 21. Let me show you those. Daniel is interested. Okay, so who is this? Okay, who is this fourth beast? Who is this eleventh horn? I want to know. Verse 19, Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder, that is, the other three beasts, with its feet. And I wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn, the eleventh horn, which came up and before which three of them, three of the horns, fell. Namely, I wanted to know that horn which had eyes and a, and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So Daniel says, I want to know who this is. I, I am extremely concerned about this symbolism. That's what he says in verse 15. You know, the, at the end of the verse, you know, these visions kept alarming me. Could not get the picture of this fourth beast and this eleventh horn out of his head. He had to know, and he gets the answer in verses 23 to 26. Thus he said, "This heavenly creature that Daniel asks, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom." 
which will be different from all the others. Verse 24, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another king will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous kings and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High. We read that one. Verse 26, But the court will sit for judgment, and his, his dominion or his kingdom will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. In verse 17, they're called... These four beasts are called four kings. But in verse 23, they're called four kingdoms. So that's, when we think of the beasts, we need to think of kings, kingdoms. Kings, are kings and kingdoms, both of them. The kingdom would be so great that it would... This fourth kingdom would be so great that it would eventually uh, be given authority over the whole earth. Look at the end of verse 23. This fourth kingdom will devour all the other kingdoms and... Uh, will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And this fourth kingdom will rise to power, have authority over the whole earth, but then this eleventh horn will, this eleventh horn will come and he will make himself prominent by removing three of these ten kings in the confederacy with his military power. And his quick, quick rise to power will lead to his arrogancy or his arrogance and his blasphemy. And He will take out His anger on the Jews. That's what verse 25 tells us. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints, most notably the Jews. And it says there in verse 25 that He'll try to make alterations in t- with time and law. Now, it's not clear exactly what is meant there, but, but what I think is happening there is that He's probably trying to get rid of religious days and religious times so that He can make a one world religion which is all surrounded uh, with the worship or all centered on the worship of himself. But notice at the end of verse 25 that his, while he rises to power very quickly, his reign will be short-lived. They will be given into his hand, the end of verse 25, for a time, times, and half a time. I remember in Daniel chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 4 when we saw the humiliation of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that he was to be made like a madman for seven times, is the way it is explained. And uh, I argued then that that most likely is referring to years. And there are lots of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is this, that, that this time, times, and half a time is time, one year, times, two years, so that's three, and then half a time, three and a half years. So we have three and a half years, And the reason we know that is because later on in Daniel and in the book of Revelation, we have the number of days that this time period will be. That there is a a time of tribulation, the first half of the tribulation, there's a time of trouble, and then there's a time of great trouble. That's the second half of the tribulation. And both of those time periods are said to be 1,260 days. And so his his reign will be short-lived. His kingdom will be taken from him and he will be destroyed. Verse 26 says that, that his dominion will be taken from him, annihilated and destroyed forever. So while he is fearful, the end of the vision, the end of the story is that he doesn't reign forever. Well, let's uh, see the Ancient of Days here in verses 9 and 10. Uh, I think you already know who that is. The Ancient of Days here is capitalized in the New American Standard, indicating that this is referring to whom? God the Father, right? And the description of him on the 
throne is consistent with other images that we know of God, that His throne is ablaze with fire. God comes to Moses. God is often pictured as a burning fire. He doesn't have a body. He is spirit. So, so He's often pictured as fire. Remember, Moses comes to him in a burning bush where he's pictured as fire. He leads Israel, God does, through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. In Ezekiel 1, his throne is described as having flames shooting out and around it. And uh, we were going to look at Revelation chapter 1 and 19 and see that, that God's throne is often pictured this way, um, but we don't have time to do that. So the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne and the end of verse 10, the court sat and the books were opened. Now what we need to know is that the Ancient of Days is different from this next person that we are introduced to in verse 13. Notice, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming and He came up to the Ancient of Days. So the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days implying that they're two different people, two different persons. The Son of Man, of course, as you uh, likely guessed, is Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man more than 75 times in the Gospels. And this Son of Man will, be, will come up to the Ancient of Days and what happens to Him? Notice the end of verse 13, "...and it was presented, and He was presented before Him, and to Him, so to the Son of Man, was given dominion, or you could think of it this way, a kingdom, glory, dominion or, or rule, glory, and a kingdom that all the people, nations, and men of every language would serve Him. And His dominion or His rule is an everlasting rule which will not pass away and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And you know, this is consistent with King Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. And if you want to write these verses down, chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, and chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. So, Daniel 2, 34, 35, 44, 45. Those verses show us that this kingdom actually comes and takes over these other four kingdoms that seem to be taking over the whole world. You know, before it was the stone that comes and, and, and crushes the feet of that huge statue and causes the crumble be smashed into a million pieces and then His stone becomes a mountain that covers the whole earth. Here, He takes over what the little horn thought He had control of. And this, His kingdom is unlike any of these previous kingdoms in that His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It's a kingdom that will not have an end. And we know that that kingdom begins at the end of the tribulation period and that will, it will last for a thousand years and then for eternity to follow thousand years here on this earth for eternity on the new heaven and the new earth. And it, it, it's referring to Christ's second coming when He was destroys this fourth kingdom that Rome apparently will be the superpower at the time. It will be a, a rejuvenated, a recovered Rome which is represented by iron and then run by these ten kings and then eventually this eleventh king, this little horn, this this uh, fourth beast. Who is the little horn? I think you know by now it's the Antichrist. 
that He will rise to power in a short period of time. He will blaspheme God's name. He will demand worship of Himself and His image. But God will destroy Him and His kingdom. And the keys to the kingdom will be handed over to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the plot of the vision. The second peg we wanted to look at is the plot of the vision. These next two are much quicker, I hope. The plot of the vision is that while this fourth beast is terrifying and while it is something that for which Daniel is concerned, this fourth beast will be destroyed. It's not a kingdom that we want to mess with. Notice in verses 18, 22, and 27, we see that this kingdom will be destroyed. Verse 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom. So prior to this, he's saying that these four kings will reign. This fourth king will be amazingly powerful. But the saints of the highest one, verse 18, will receive the kingdom, that is Christ's kingdom, and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So while we saw before that it was the kingdom of Christ that is handed over to the Son of Man, it, it belongs to Him. We call it Christ's kingdom. Here in verse 18, we see that it's a kingdom also of the saints. That is, the, the, the church saints. It's a, it's a kingdom that belongs to us. Verse 22 describes it in the same way. Verse 21 says, I kept looking, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And then verse 27, Then the sovereignty, dominion, and greatness of all the kingdoms on their whole, uh, under the whole earth will be given to, and we expected to say, the Son of Man. But instead it says, to the people of the saints of the Highest One. And His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. So, while these four beasts have great power and great rule, and they are terrifying, Christ's kingdom is the one that will win and that will be handed over to Him and to us. The application of the vision is the third peg that we wanted to look at. And there are... Four. Before we see that, just verse 28, Daniel finishes the revelation and he is just pale and he keeps the matter to himself. Not that he didn't write it down. Obviously, we have it for us today. But that he probably didn't tell King Belshazzar and probably didn't tell his three friends while he was contemplating it. And so we need to ask the question, what do we do with this information? How can we apply this revelation, this vision that we now understand, how can we apply it to our lives and to our future? Number one, recognize that our enemy will win many battles, but but he will ultimately lose the war. Our enemy will win many battles, but he will lose the war. And there is no minimizing of the evil that there will be in the last days. There is no minimizing of the evil that there is today in our world. But we need to keep in mind that while Satan will win many battles and he will rule the hearts of many evil and wicked people, he will ultimately lose the war. Evil will not go on for eternity. Sin will not be eternal, at least in the presence of God and in His world. The greatest of world rulers fail to rule as God intended. They all will be displaced by this stone. 
by this King who is handed by the Son of Man, King Jesus, who will rule righteously. The kingdoms of men will be replaced by the kingdom of God. Our enemy will win many battles, but will ultimately lose the war. Number two, our Savior will win the final victory because He already has won. He will win the final victory because He already has won. The kings and the kingdoms of this world are only temporary and they have actually been established by God according to Romans 13. And they have time to rule. And the worst of them will even be given power and authority to kill the saints. But we don't have to fear because God is the ultimate judge of all things and Jesus is the one who will open the scrolls and Jesus is the one who has already gained the victory at the cross and the resurrection. You remember Pilate, he asked Jesus to, to respond to him and to his questioning. And Jesus says this, You may think you have authority over me now, but I am the Son of Man who will come in the clouds. And he was essentially saying, Listen, I may be on trial right now. I may be the defendant and you are the judge. But one, way, one day those roles are going to be reversed. And I will be the judge and you will be on trial before Me. I am the Son of Man who is coming in the clouds. I have already won. And that's why we can know that Christ will have the ultimate victory. Number three, we are on the Lord's side. Christian, no matter what you face in this life, you will not be separated from the love of Christ. That's what Romans 8 tells us. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Even death cannot separate you from it. The worst that can be done to you by the enemy is for them to torture and kill your body. But then what? What can they do? You see, Revelation 12 teaches us that those who actually die physically for the sake of Christ will still overcome. How could we see someone who's died as an overcomer? And the way that Revelation 12 describes it is that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We don't overcome because we skipped out on death. We skipped out on the opposition. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Paul says to die is gain. And so death even cannot separate us from the love of Christ. We are on the Lord's side. And then finally, God's kingdom cannot fail. God knows what is going to happen. God knows what is going to happen tomorrow. God knows what is going to happen in the end times because God's planned it all. And evil will reign as a part of God's plan for a time, but Christ will destroy that evil and He will reign forever. And no one will be able to thwart God's plan or say to Him, what have you done? They can't say that. Because our God is in the heavens. And He does whatever He pleases. His kingdom cannot fail. Christ will bring justice to the earth. It may feel like we've got to do something now. What, what are we going to do? And yes, God's given us some work to do. But our job is not to change everybody. Okay, our job is to influence those with whom God's put us in contact and then leave the rest to God. God's kingdom cannot fail and we are on His side. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the confidence that we can have in You, the confident hope 
that you will have the final victory, that, that you've given uh, that you will give the kingdom over to Christ and he will reign forever and ever, and no power can overcome his authority. Lord, it, it hurts now. It's it's painful now for us because the kingdoms of this world are winning in some sense. And it feels like we are losing. Sometimes it feels like we're not even on the right team. And yet we know the end of the story. And Lord, I love to be reminded of that. And I pray that you would just encourage us through your word this morning, through your spirit as we meditate on these things. Of the great confidence that we have in Jesus having the final victory. And that all of the efforts that we put out for the sake of his name will not be forgotten. Any cup of cold water that's given someone is just like giving it to Christ Himself. And it will not be forgotten. So Lord, help us to be merciful to the lost and merciful to the saved. Help us to point them to Christ. Help us to to, to be able to, to cause the lost to see their need of turning to Him and and that they will ultimately stand before Him as judge. Lord, we're thankful for the confidence that we can have when we stand before Him that we don't have to show any works that we've done. We don't have to show uh, a great amount of efforts or pedigree. All we have to do is, is show that we have put our faith in Christ and that Christ was enough for us. We pray that other people would come to that recognition through our testimony through our words. And we pray that You'd help us to encourage others toward greater spiritual growth as we seek to do the same ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name.